If you have a brain, you have bias. So let's just own it. Some biases help us by simplifying our decision-making process. Other biases hold us back by impacting who gets hired and promoted, and even who we approach to be our friends. Welcome to Breaking the Bias, a podcast where we interview impact makers who are breaking the bias when it comes to inclusion and equity. Because sharing our stories is how real belonging happens. There's always this hesitation around, well, if we bring in marginalized groups, is that going to decrease the opportunities for others? So what's your perspective on that? Like, do you think increasing opportunities for marginalized groups reduces opportunities for others? So I think about it, and this is an analogy I've been using lately, is that it's about opening doors. Mm -hmm. So it's not about opening doors for some and closing doors for others. Today, Consciously Unbiased founder Ashish Kaushal virtually sits down with Rebecca Perot, a TEDx speaker and global diversity, equity, and inclusion leader at Pro Unlimited. They talk about why belonging matters for your entire workforce and not just your full-time employees, steps leaders can take to build inclusion for all, why leaders need to put processes in place to help block their biases when making decisions about hiring, the importance of practice when it comes to getting comfortable talking about different dimensions of diversity. Now, on to their conversation. So what does consciously unbiased mean to you or say to you? I love the term. I think it's so catchy um, and it's so accurate. Um, we all have biases. You know, I've been doing this work for 12 years, thinking about unconscious bias and, um, and learning about it, and I still have them. Um, we all uh, make quick unconscious decisions all the time. And they're actually good sometimes. They help us, they help us process all of these thousands of pieces of information that we're inundated with every day, and that's healthy. But where we need to be really conscious of our decisions and what we're doing is when we make judgments about people. We need to stop. We need to slow our brains. We need to be conscious and thoughtful about what biases we might be utilizing to make decisions about people. So I think it's so important to make that unconscious, those quick decisions, conscious. I love that you said that because I think a lot of people talk about in the industry how we have to get rid of biases and they're not good and stuff. And I think uh, just like you said, not all biases are bad. And part of it's about how we live our lives. And so we have to sort of embrace them. And I'm not sure you can actually get rid of them. But what I, I think you can do is manage them. And I think what you said is perfect. Yeah, I think it's so important. It's, it, you know, these, the quick judgments, right? It's not, not necessarily the ones that have to do with people. But, you know, you don't, if you're crossing the street, you don't need to stop and consciously think about, is that car coming too fast? Can I just slowly saunter across the street? If it seems to be coming fast, run across the street. It's okay. Uh, we don't need to stop and use that conscious brain. But people, we want to, right? We want to be very conscious. We want to be thoughtful when it comes to complex items like people. Absolutely. And I know you're really passionate about diversity, so I'd love for the audience to hear about why diversity, equity, and inclusion is personally important to you. Yeah, I think it was kind of something that's been innate in me as even a young child. I've just always been passionate about uh, kind of equality and um, and fairness. But I I'm a woman. I'm biracial, and I know what it's like to be the only person of color in a room um, or in an entire organization, both from a personal perspective and from a professional perspective. Um, I worked in male-dominated fields like mergers and acquisitions for the first half of my entire career. Um, and I saw and I really experienced some of those roadblocks 
some that maybe you don't even realize are there. They're kind of these invisible roadblocks and challenges. Um, and so once I started to learn and recognize those road, roadblocks that I didn't even see myself beforehand, I really kind of harnessed that passion to become an advocate, to help others have aha moments, whether they come from diverse backgrounds or are from minor, majority groups. Um, and really work to make long-term change in the world. So utilizing that history and that experience to to move us all forward. I love it. So you you decided instead of living with the problem and the constraints within it, you decided to change them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did a I did a project um, kind of in my previous career looking at succession planning for the top levels of a, um, a professional services firm. And it's like, hmm, I'm, I'm working 85 hours a week. And my ultimate goal is to be part of this group that I'm, I'm looking at right here. And there is no one that looks even remotely like me in this group. And it, that's not because of lack of skill. It's not because of lack of passion. Um, so am I going to be able to get there? What's holding me back? And that really spurred my, my obsession with research <laughs> in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space and in educating myself and others. I love that you said that. And I, even lack of skills piece, because I think there's this misconception that there's not diverse talent out there that's available, right? And I think it's, because yep. it's not that it doesn't exist, it's that we're not open to looking at people who look different than us. And I think that's the fundamental shift that has to happen is that that argument has to go away because it's not true. <laughs> exactly. And there's something to be said for being, you know, realistic that sure, on a macro level, there might be certain market availability. But on a smaller level for each role, can you find qualified people of all different demographic groups? Yes. So that when there's one manager saying that it it doesn't apply, you can find people to interview for your role. Absolutely. And so you would spend a lot of your career on the on sort of pushing diversity and inclusion in the full time side, and you joined Pro recently to sort of tackle that issue from a holistic standpoint, where you're taking on both full time and contract. And so I, I think there's some stats around. There's roughly 5.9 million contingent workers in the U.S. Cur currently, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, how might advancing diversity and inclusion for this segment of workers create a greater belonging in the workplace culture overall? Yeah, I think it's one of these things that I find so fascinating because I spent, you know, 10 plus years working on DNI from the uh, from the full time perspective and actually created slides and pieces of the strategy that said that we're, this doesn't apply to the contingent workforce space. And there were lots of reasons for that. It felt like it was it was external. It felt like it was something harder to tackle, and we needed to make gains sooner rather than later to start to make project progress. But it never felt right, right? Being passionate about this work, wanting to make change, it didn't feel very inclusive to be leaving off a huge piece of the uh, organization's population. Um, and if we think about the the business case or the reasons for change when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, whether that be kind of the business side, the, the increased innovation, increased sales, return on investment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or if it be the moral case for change is that it's, it's beyond time. It needs to happen now. 
or even the war for talent, as we need to get more people. All of those aspects don't change if we're talking about full-time workers or contingent workers. They're the same dynamics. So it's important to bring them along on the journey for the case for change for organizations as well as the case for change for the world. We're not thinking about it holistically if we're leaving off your statistic of 5.9 million or some estimates that it's going to be 40% of the global workforce in the coming years. All of those statistics drive us towards this conclusion that we can't leave off this growing segment of the population if we really want to impact our organizations and impact the world. So can you further unpack how companies who are including only full-time workers in their DNA efforts won't be able to succeed in the real cultural change? Yeah, when we think about contingent workers, sometimes we think about somebody kind of sitting in their their home office, which I guess we all are right now because we're all working from home still for the most part. Um, but it, as we start to potentially you know, work outside of the home again, work in offices, we're sitting side by side with full-time workers in many cases. Um, they are contributing just as fully as a, contri- as a full-time worker to the bottom line of the company, to the success of the company. So if they're not included in that conversation, if they're dynamics of inclusion aren't a part of the conversation, then the company isn't fully realizing all of the benefits, nor are they contributing to social change as much as they could. Because these people, right, we're not talking about spoons or forks in our cafeterias, we're talking about people, and they need to be a part of this conversation. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because I've always said that if you leave half the company out of the process, <laughs> you really can't fix anything. Right? Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. If you think about the education that needs to be there, the level of belonging, um, all those aspects, they're just as important for, for a contingent worker as they are for a full-time worker. We're, all, we're talking about people. They're all people. Yeah, no, absolutely. And speaking of that, you mentioned about working from home and that we're all been doing that. So I kind of feel like the last year has really blurred the line between a temp worker or a contingent worker and a full-time worker because they don't have key cards to get in the billings anymore. And they're also <laughs> the same laptops from different homes. Right? So there's really, the lines have blurred. So I think um, kind of rolling into that, we hear a lot about co-employment risk. Can you explain some of the risks leaders may perceive happening if they include more of their contingent workers in company events and why this niceness is not a co-employment risk? Well, you know, I'm definitely not a lawyer, don't claim to be, but as I've seen this play out in many organizations, it's so much about language and about communication. So companies get really nervous about this. I had a client actually before I was at Pro, before I was really in contingent workforce space, I had a a CHRO at a client that really wanted to listen to her employees full-time and contingent, and include their temp and contingent workers in their holiday party. And you would have thought that a CHRO could have just written this out and it it would have happened with an email. And it was hours and hours of work on her part to to move this forward. Um, So I've, I've experienced this problem in several capacities. And ultimately what I've been finding, and the reason I said the language, is it's about making sure that you are just saying I'm including in this holiday party 
our employees and our contingent workers, then those lines are still there, but they're both included. Um, so really thinking about that. And as now a part of PRO, I, I can see really these, these amazing benefits of being able to partner with an MSP and partner with amazing suppliers that are working on this that can help bring the contingent workforce up to the same level and the same standards that a company is giving for their FTEs. So there's this balance of where can we just include them and just know the areas that we can that we can mitigate risk through language for just including them. And then where we feel like we can't through risk, how we can utilize our partners like MSPs and like our suppliers to, to help us with this. Yeah, no, that's great. And without naming names um, across the, the pro portfolio, are there certain things that clients are doing that you're like, wow, I wish all our clients were doing this in terms of diversity and inclusion? Yeah. And are you thinking on the FTE side and the contingent side or both or more so on the contingent? More so on the contingent, but I'm open to both. I think a lot of our clients are doing amazing work when it comes to their FTEs. Um, And a lot of them have been focused on this for some of them decades. So they're they're really making progress there. Um, there's only a handful so far of our clients that are thinking about the contingent workforce when it comes to the inclusion side. And the ones that are, you can see the difference in their data. You can see the difference in the, um, the reoccurring contracts for workers. You see it in uh, contingent workers leaving their contracts early at just such a small rate. Um, So you see this work. Uh, And what they're doing is trying to include them in every place that they can, right? When we just talked about the co-employment risks, they kind of establish their own boundaries. So they're including them in in as many trainings as they can. And where, where they're not, they're engaging with us to say, how can you help with this piece of it? They are holding suppliers accountable for a level of inclusion. It's not just about bringing us candidates, it's about how you're supporting them. So the, the clients that are doing that and taking a more uh, a partner approach with, with us as their MSP have been able to see those results. They're seeing more diverse networks and they're seeing uh, workers that feel more included. Wow. So you just basically made the case for the ROI and diversity because you're saying yes, exactly. increased worker productivity and they're literally doing this while investing time and money into their temp workers, but they're getting better ROI because of that. Exactly. Because if you think about the need of a, you know, the same, the same aspects that go into wanting to reduce turnover when it comes to your full-time workers, those are similar to the same dynamics for your contingent workers. Even though naturally they're, they're shorter term, they're going to turn over. If you can have a role in the company filled by a worker that was already there, there's just you have so much more rewards, right? Less training, understanding the culture. So there's so much return on that investment for making them feel included. I think that's a great idea. And I think people don't realize that putting an extra $100 in training will probably return (laughs) $10,000 in productivity. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) How How can we measure diversity at the micro level and not the macro level? So I love this question. And to me, this goes to something that I've always included in my strategies with clients 
which is to say we need to look at data at an aggregate, right? We look at the data to say what, how are groups of people doing? How are groups of people feeling? And what are the differences in their experience? And I think the differences piece is so key because HR and, and staffing suppliers and MSPs have looked at the aggregate for a long time, right? They're like, oh, how are our people doing? How overall, what's worker satisfaction? But when you're taking this lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you have to look at the differences in experience. So we can do that at that whole level, right? The differences of, of experience um, at the aggregate high macro level to see where where we want to go. And we do that through uh, diversity disclosures, right? Going directly to the workers to see, uh, to, to voluntarily collect that data mm-hmm. and, then, and then overlay it on metrics like ones that I mentioned before, right? Of their, their satisfaction on how the fills, on if they're leaving contracts early, all these things give us that macro level. At the individual level, that qualitative data of talking to people, finding out individual experiences and the stories that go along with that macro data. That is where it gets so important. And that's where it it gets meaningful. And that's where I've also seen the aha moments with leaders and, uh, and employees, where you have those individual experiences that that say, really, are my colleagues are feeling that way? Really, my employees are feeling that way? And that's where I've really seen those those aha moments and catalysts for change. Absolutely. I love it. And then can you share it? Because I know there's always this hesitation around, well, if we bring in marginalized groups, is that going to decrease the opportunities for others? So why do you think, what do you, what's your perspective on that? Like, do you think increasing opportunities for marginalized groups reduces opportunities for others? So I think about it, and this is an analogy I've been using lately, is that it's about opening doors. Mm-hmm. So it's not about opening doors for some and closing doors for others. So when we think about that, oh, this means there's not opportunities for certain groups. That's not what this is. It's about making sure everyone has access to the opportunities. So I almost, you know, imagine looking at a room and a a whole line of doors, and we want every single one of those to be open. We don't want it to be just cracked. We don't want um, some to be locked. We need them all to be wide open. And some of those doors naturally have some roadblocks. They have, there's, it's, it's a little bit hard, right? Even once you get in the door, maybe there's some stones there, there's a chair in the way. So we want to remove those barriers to make sure everyone has the right playing field. And some doors might need a little step, right? There might be some steps that need to be there. Maybe there needs to be a rug in front of one. And the investment in that step and in that rug are very small. But what it allows us to do is really the person who gets to the front is the one that can do the job the best. So it's not about closing doors, it's about making sure all of them are open. I love that, letting cream rise to the top. And the other thing is also, if you think about it, everyone I talk to says they can't find enough talent right now. So it's not like anyone's missing out on an opportunity, it's that there's not (laughs) people for the opportunity. So 
expanding the pool is a great idea. <laughs> exactly. The more people you can get, the better. And you want, you know, somebody that needs that step doesn't mean they can't do the job as well. It just means that that step was necessary. But is there a step in the job? Maybe not, right? You maybe just you're sitting at your desk, but to get in that door, you needed that. Um, and it's it often is not a very big investment to put that there. 100%. We um, consciously and bias say that if you have a brain, you have a bias. It makes us human. And it's about learning mm -hmm. to better manage those biases that hold us back. What advice can you share about how to address unconscious bias in the workplace? One thing that one of my clients said many years ago, and I just loved and I, I say to this day, is that the more we can bend the river before it gets to an individual, the better. So it's not all on the individual or a hiring manager uh, to, to block their own biases. The more we can put in place processes that do that, the better. So if we can blind resumes in the first, uh, the first few rounds of, of uh, looking through resumes, that helps block that bias. Once we get to the other levels, research shows us that there's fairly good chances that different demographic groups get to the top. But at that initial stage, it's where a quick brain comes in and unconscious bias tends to rear its head. So if we can blind resumes, if we can take a look at job descriptions and utilize processes and, and research to say what sort of words resonate with different demographic groups. What sort of criteria innately blocks out several demographic groups? Um, there's research that we can pull that shows that maybe a certain um, certification has 10% women getting that certification. And another certification that's very similar has 80% women getting that certification. If you can change that, it opens more doors for you. Again, it's not closing any doors, but it's opening and widening your pool. So using those processes to help block the unconscious bias. And then of course, education, right? Being aware of our unconscious biases can help block that as well. So wherever we can change the processes and then the knowledge to block our own biases. But as you well know, Ashish, and, and I know from our, our training days and training work, uh, there's a lot of things that we do to trick ourselves when it comes to unconscious bias. We don't want to have biases. Nobody wants to think that they're biased. So we, we think, oh, I'm, I'm shifting my criteria because it's legitimate, it's objective. And really our brains are doing that because a certain stereotype uh, fits that role for us. So what can we do to block that? We can change processes to set the criteria in advance and agree to it, to prioritize the criteria, to talk about candidates um, criteria by criteria rather than candidate by candidate. So again, thinking about what processes we can do to bend the river before it gets to us. Oh my God, these are amazing points. I think hopefully DNI, um, HR and procurement rewind this piece and take out their notebooks because I think there's. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things when we started consciously and bias is I wanted to make sure that the idea of unconscious bias wasn't considered negative. And if we do think from positive perspective, then we turn into into action. And so one of the things that we're really happy about is we come up with this concept called micro progressions. And those are little things that we can do from a daily basis to help increase belonging in the workplace. Um, 
I think you and I have talked about this quite a bit. So I'd love to get one micro progression that you think people should put into practice um, in the workplace that could really just help change the culture. Yeah. There's so many little things because this work is really made up of, of small changes, small actions. But one of the things that from my work of talking to different demographic groups that I've heard is the comfort and being able to talk about differences. So the more we can do as individuals to read about and practice saying and talking about different dimensions of difference, it can only help increase in belonging. So when I say that, it means things like knowing what LGBTQ plus means or LGBTQIA and practicing that and knowing what each of those terms stand for, being able to say it and have it roll off your tongue. I worked with a, a leader a little while ago and we practiced it, right? He stood in front of the mirror and said it over and over and over again so that when he was talking about this work, he could include everyone and not have it feel like an afterthought because before he had a few times said, oh, you know, we wanna really make sure we include LGB, you, you know, that, that acronym. And does that make you feel included? No, it does not. So being comfortable with that and practicing feeling comfortable saying our Black employees and, and knowing that that's an okay thing to say, talking to employees, talking to people. So those small acts of knowledge and practice can make such a huge difference. One leader being able to say LGBTQ+, makes such a difference to the entire organization. If you're a part of that community or not, it still gives everyone this sense of inclusion, a culture of inclusion. I love it. I'm gonna add one more question that we didn't have for today because I wanna get your perspective on it. I've kind of said that the it's great to see over the last like two years that the staffing industry and the suppliers have all started embracing diversity inclusion and sort of become activists. And I always say that we as a, together have the have an ecosystem approach where we can actually help solve and increase diversity inclusion in the workplace. But mm -hmm. I do think it's important that we're not copying each other and actually finding our niche and our passion because that becomes contagious and that's how we um, make society move forward. But I think if we end up just replicating each other, then we kind of dilute the message and things don't really work that way because it's not done well. So what's some advice you give staffing suppliers who are starting to get in this field, but maybe don't have a strategy around this? Oh, I think that's interesting. So one, I think it's about talking to their employees. It probably depends on their size a little bit, how robust that piece would be. But talking to their employees to see, is there some passion there? Are there certain areas where they can focus? Um, so really starting with that personal passion piece, it might be that there, there isn't something that raises to the top. And if that's the case, let's take a look at their market. Where is their niche right now? What is their kind of elevator pitch for their company excluding DNI? And think about how they can utilize that to make progress when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So if they are particularly a, a tech supplying um, company in the, in the tech industry to think about you know, what schools they're going to, um, what, uh, what networks they're utilizing specifically for the tech industry, if that's their claim to fame, if they are in certain locations in the United States 
What sort of demographic groups could they focus on? So think about their business model and where they can make the biggest impact. Not the new big splashy thing that's happened or what hit the media, but from where they are, their expertise, how can they make a difference? I love it. So they leverage their strength and also find their passion and put those two together and you have diversity there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Great. Well, I, I really enjoyed this discussion. Is there anything else you'd like to add that I haven't asked? No, I don't think so. It's just such an important conversation. I, I love having this and love being able to partner with Consciously Unbiased on this work because inclusion is something that we're, we, haven't, we haven't really unwrapped yet when it comes to, to the contingent workforce. So I'm looking forward to working with more companies, working with yourself, and really being able to unpack what this looks like and learn from it because we'll just continue to be able to exponentially make progress as we learn more and more. Absolutely. We're honored to be part of this journey with you and I'm definitely excited that we're going to be doing things together. Thanks. Thank you. You can learn more about our amazing guests and get show notes at consciouslyunbiased.com slash listen. And we want to hear from you. Please subscribe and rate Breaking the Bias on iTunes and Spotify. And drop us a note to let us know if there's a topic that you'd really want to hear about or a guest that you'd love to see on the show. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Bias.